Welcome to Revenue Champions, I'm Alice. And I'm John. We interview leaders, experts, and entrepreneurs in the B2B space. Giving you the inside tips, tricks, and hacks for you to grow and scale your B2B business today. Welcome to Revenue Champions, episode 15. I'm William Gay, and I'm one of the senior AEs here at Cognizant, and I'm stepping in for John and Alice this week. Today with me, we've got Josh Braun on the podcast, uh, the one and the only. Um, I don't know too much about Josh, but I do know that he can't hang his own TV, so it's really exciting to have him here on the podcast. <laughs> Guilty. I did call a task rabbit to hang a TV for me. I'm assuming you can hang a TV. Is that why you're... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, guilty as charged. I could definitely, I could definitely do that. I'm jealous because you grew up on a farm. You grew up on a farm. You could do all kinds of stuff. Yeah, I like. I do like to pretend so, but there's definitely. I'm also a twin, Josh. So there's definitely like a real life version of me who's a lot better at all this stuff. So I'm somewhere in the middle. But anyway, look, it's really, really great to have you here on the podcast. There's a, a lot of people who will be listening who will know exactly who you are, of course, um, and will be very excited to hear some of the excellent things that you've got to say as well. Um, but for anyone that doesn't know you, Josh, uh, it would be great if we could get a little intro about you uh, and what you do, etc., just for the people that are listening. Yeah. So my name is Josh. And people typically will reach out to me when they're making lots and lots of phone calls, but they're hearing I'm not interested far too many times, or they're sending lots of cold emails and they're not getting the responses that they hope they would get, or they just are tired of the debilitating feeling of rejection that's associated with doing outbound. And so I teach people some techniques on how to sell without selling your soul so that you can stand out and be a red X and a sea of white circles and have conversations with people that are skeptical while also having a little fun doing it. Nice. What an excellent intro. I love that. Uh, the, the red X and the sea of white circles. It's a great, great analogy as well. Um, but Josh, we've got some questions here from our from our own SDR team here at Cognizant. We've been formulating some things that they definitely want some help on as well. And I've also got a couple of questions about your work. So I think it'd be really good actually to kick things off. You often talk on LinkedIn about about the poke the bear method. And I love this. I think this is such a great, a great analogy, but it'd be great. It'd be great for you if we could hear from you sort of what is the poke the bear method? Yeah. So I'll, I'll tell you two stories and you tell me what they have in common. All right. So they're, they're both true stories. So story number one goes like this. Uh, this was a couple of years ago. I was actually in the mall with my wife and I didn't need anything at all. I was just in there keeping her company. And while she was shopping, I was killing time. I walked into this fit to run store. And again, I didn't need anything. So if the store associate came up to me, Will, and said, how can I help you? What do you think I would have said? Uh, probably the same thing as me or any, anyone else. Um, I, I'm just browsing. So I'm fine. Just browsing. If she said, uh, what brings you in today? What do you think I would have said? Um, just browsing. Just browsing. Probably. Yeah. I should. So she didn't do any of those things. She looked down at my sneakers. She said, are you a runner? I said, yes. Yeah. She said, what distance? I said, I'm training for a marathon. And then she said, have you ever had a running gait test? And I said, what's that? And moments later, I'm on a treadmill in the store. I actually have a recording of this. She freezes the video frame and she says this, Josh, you notice how your feet are over pronating when you run? I was like, oh yeah, I could see that. She goes, and did you know that if you run in sneakers that are not made for pronated feet, you can get injured on long distance runs and get sidelined. If you'd like, I could take a look at your sneakers to see if they're made for pronated feet. And about four minutes later, I'm spending 180 fucking dollars on new sneakers and insoles. <laughs> so that's, that's story number one. 
Um, story number two goes like this. Again, true story. I love washing my car on the weekends. I use a bucket and a sponge and suds like probably most of you listening. I didn't have a problem with my bucket and suds and sponge until I got this email from this company called Adams Car Wash Supply. And the sentence said this, Josh, how do you know your car wash mitt won't scratch your car? That kind of stopped me in my tracks because I was thinking to myself, well, what do you mean? What's this talking about? I wasn't sure. It was a question that was difficult to answer. So it turns out that if you wash your car with a normal bucket and sponge, dirt can get on the sponge. That's a problem because if you're a car nut like me and you have a dark colored car, you get these swirl marks on the hood. And that's about $800 to get taken care of, not to mention the residual value of the car depreciates when you sell it because when you get it repainted, they run a paint thin meter over the hood. They could tell it's been repainted. It's worth less money. And Adam sells this new kind of bucket. It's got a grate on the bottom of it. You rub your sponge on the grate and the dirt settles to the bottom of the bucket and off your car. And I bought it. It's called a grit guard. So, Will, back to you. Um, what do those two stories have in common? Um, they both cause you to really, to really think about the problem that you didn't know was there. That's exactly it, right? So everybody that you reach out to is washing their car with a bucket. Everybody that you reach out to is running in their sneakers. So in order for you to get someone's attention and interest and to be a red X, you have to know something that they don't know that can cause them a potential future disaster. So in the case of the car example, what was the future disaster that this message illuminated? It's a big loss of money when you go to sell your car, damage to the car, probably eventual hurt, sadness, all the rest. Yeah, scratch, 800. What about in the running example? What was the future disaster that it shined a light on in that example? Um, probably damage to your feet. If your shoes don't fit properly, your inability to run um, as you get older and stop, stop doing something that you love and enjoy. Yeah, and, and you, maybe you get sidelined um, for the race, right? So all these problems that you shine a light on, they all have implications. I call it, you know, making the problem bleed a little bit, right? Like the problem with getting sponge dirt on the sponge, that's the problem. The problem with that, the impact of that is it scratches a car, 800 bucks, cars in the shop, paint thin meter, cars worth less money. And then personally, it might bother you that your car's been repainted. Same thing with the running example. The problem is you're running in sneakers that might not be for your feet, you can get injured. And the reason that's a problem, the implication of it, twisting the knife is you get sidelined and you feel bad that you couldn't finish the race that you trained for for six months. So all these problems have like emotional, personal reasons and also business reasons. And the job of a salesperson is to have a hypothesis as to what the prospect doesn't know that you know. And then you ask a question like we just demonstrated that essentially pokes the bear. Um, it's a metaphor for asking someone a question that's a little difficult to answer and what typically happens is people say, well, what do you mean? And then they're kind of leaning forward. Um, so having that as a perspective is a crucial first step in doing outreach. Because if you're talking about better buckets and you're talking about better sneakers, the answer you're going to get most of the time is I got a vendor for that. I got that covered because they do. So it's not really about a value proposition. It's about trying to identify what is it the problem that they might not know they had that can hurt them. And how can we ask that in a way that's going to get them to scratch their head and say, what do you mean? I'm not sure. 
it's that illuminating question, isn't it? Something that really illuminates the pain that they've got that they weren't aware of as well and brings it to their attention. Yeah. Yeah, back in the uh, 30s, this, the, the copywriter's name is eluding me right now. I think it was Elmer something, but it, he had a great ad. It said, um, how do you know your oil is topped off? How do, you, how do you know your oil is at the proper level? This was back before they had dipsticks and ways to measure stuff you know, electronically. And that one sentence, um, I think it was like for Texaco, 250,000 more people got oil changes because they were like, I don't know. And if I don't have, if my, if my oil is not at the proper level, I could get, mess up my engine and damage my car. It, it kind of makes someone scratch their head and think, hmm, I'm not sure. And people love to find out the answer to stuff. Most people are really, really curious to sort of solve these things. Yeah, that's, um, that's an interesting thing that you brought up. Like if you've ever watched a TV series on Netflix, what happens in the last like 10 seconds always? What do they do to you? Uh, the hook, the cliffhanger. They get you excited for the next episode. Yeah, that, so it's, a, it's what's called a, um, an information gap coined by uh, George Lowenstein out of Carnegie Mellon. And it's this idea that brains crave closure between what they know and what they don't know. I was watching my wife yesterday with a, with a puzzle, jigsaw puzzle, and she kept going back to it and going back to it and going back to it because she had to finish it. There was like 15 pieces left. So that's the brain. And it's the same thing with cold calling. It's the same thing with cold emailing. How can you apply these principles of how people are wired to the cold calling to the email to make people a little curious? Same exact way as TV series do on, on Netflix. Yeah, I think that's going to be probably one of the best ways that you can get someone to engage with you over email as well as that information gap. It's so easy to ignore someone over email. It's a little bit harder on the phone. Um, obviously, you're going to get some people hang up and we'll move on to that in a bit. But that's definitely sort of one of the key hooks to get someone excited and get someone to respond, I'm sure. Yeah, I've been ignored plenty of times on the cold call. I mean, if you're, if you're not interesting, if you don't have a perspective um, and you're hearing I'm not interested far too many times, that means you're not interesting meaning you don't have a perspective on what it is that you know that your prospect doesn't know that can hurt them. And so from their perspective, you're like, I'm doing that already. I got that already. You're not really meaningfully different. And so that's where a lot of the crux of the problem comes when you're cold calling and, and cold emailing is that prospects are saying to themselves, I got sneakers. I don't need faster sneakers. My sneakers are fine. They're good enough. You got the good enough syndrome. <laughs> like most of the time when you're reaching out to people, things are good enough. Like all the TVs on the market right now, every TV, they're good enough. Like they're great. They're a great picture. Whether you buy this one or that one, you hang it up on the wall, it's, it's great. And that's the same kind of thing with your prospect. Like they have something that's probably good enough. So what is it that you don't know that can hurt them bad um, around the corner? Because if you don't have that perspective and you don't clearly see how they're getting the job done today, you're gonna to be grouped into, I got that already, I'm not interested. Rightfully so, got a TV already. I mean, I'll tell you yeah. just another, another story because this is just fresh in my mind. This is like, like a couple of weeks ago. Um, I wanted to buy an expensive road bike, I'm into biking. And I decided to call three shops. I wanted this bike called a Pinarello Dogma F12 disc brake bike. Code, code for all you bikers out there that are listening. And I called the first two shops and they said I had a couple of them in my side and size and come over and you know take a look at them. I called the third bike shop, said, hey, I'm looking for a Dogma Pinarello F12 disc brake in like a 52 or 53. And the owner, his name was John at Racer's Edge, he said this, we don't sell bikes that way. Now, this is an expensive bike. It's a $13,000 bike. And he's like, we don't sell bikes that way. 
And I, I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, the problem with going into a store and buying an expensive bike is that although it'll feel comfortable when you're riding around in a parking lot, when you're taking on a 30 or 40 mile ride, you'll realize that you are hurting a little bit because it doesn't fit you right. And a lot of these bikes can't be adjusted to actually fit you. So you end up selling the bike and you lose about 50% of what you paid for it. So what we do is we fit you first and then we match to a bike. We've done more fittings in South Florida than any other company. We have 10,000 under our belt. And so if you'd like to learn more about that, we can talk. But if you're looking for a bike, we're not the right bike shop for you. That's a point of view. And I went in there and bought a bike from the guy. His name is John, right? I ended up getting a specialized bike, a completely different bike than what I wanted, but one that fit me. It was a two hour process. And again, the lesson here is he's the red X, right? Like he has a perspective and a point of view. And this is all over the place. Like I had a TV hung, TV hung story. Like just literally yesterday, I was on a site called um, TaskRabbit, which is a site where you can hire handymen. Well, unless you're willing, you don't need a site like this. You, know, you hire handymen. And I noticed people hanging TVs charge anywhere from 25 bucks to $46. I'm like, that's weird. Like, why are some people 25, why 46? So I called Tim, chatted him up. I'm like, Tim, you're 46 bucks. Why are you more money than all these other people? He goes, well, for three or four reasons. One, um, a lot of times when people go to hang a TV, they don't have the right parts. Sometimes you need special screws depending on the brackets and the configuration of your wall. I carry every single part in my car, so I'm not gonna charge you to run to Home Depot and back. Number two is that because I've hung 350 TVs just in the last six months, um, I'm really fast. And so most people will take a couple hours to hang a TV. Um, I can usually do it in under an hour. Three, most of the work I do is fixing TV problems that other people hung because they didn't have the experience, they were kind of crooked. Right. And so again, he's like, you're penalizing me for being good. That's a perspective. And I hired him. And sure enough, he came and TV was hung, you know, awesome. Right. But the point here is that the point is to have a point of view to stand out. You have to stand for something. Yeah. I'm, pro I'm probably the guy that hangs their TV a little bit crooked and says, no, nah, that's good enough. <laughs> but uh, exactly. And it, it just goes, you don't have to be the cheapest right. in the market just to sell what you're trying to sell. You have to have like real vision and you have to have compelling reasons and tell that good story um, as well. We touched on it a minute ago as well. And it's about sort of keeping people um, on the phone. Obviously that, that guy, when you called the bike shop, he, he, could, he kept you on the phone. He could have just said, yeah, we have this one. It's this much come down and come down this time. We're open these times. Instead that guy hooked you to stay on the phone. Uh, and one of the questions from our SDRs was how 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 should they keep prospects on the phone? What's some of the best ways to get people to engage with you and to stop you getting hung up on, as you said, <laughs> we have all at it. So I don't like that question for a couple of reasons because it's what the SDR wants, which is how do I get people to stay on the phone with me so that I can book a meeting and so that I can make money? And oddly enough, when your intent is to assume that everybody that you call is a fit for what you're selling and is gonna drop everything what they do and, and book a meeting with you, you end up sounding and saying things that come across as salesy, manipulative, and gross. I'll, I'll prove it to you, right? If you've ever been in the mall and you're just minding your own business and one of those aggressive mall kiosk people says, can I ask you a question? What do you do? You just say no, obviously. <laughs> I'm busy. Can't really be bothered. Why? Why? 
Well, you know they're trying to sell something, isn't it? What are you afraid you of? You're what are you afraid gonna, is going to happen? You're probably going to be hooked. Yeah, they're, they're attached to the outcome of getting a sale, right? So when your intent is to book a meeting, you end up saying things and behaving in ways that feel to the prospect like you feel when the mall kiosk person is saying, can I ask you a question? So step number one in this process of reaching out to people is to actually make a two millimeter shift and to shift away from assuming that everybody that you call needs what you have, and instead to detach from the outcome and to let go of assumptions and to create an environment where prospects just feel comfortable telling you the truth, which is, yes, they'd like to share a little bit more and continue the conversation, or no, they don't at this time, and either way, you're okay. And it's almost like you're a little indifferent to whatever happens on the call. And when you do that, coincidentally and ironically, um, you feel and sound less salesy and manipulative, which is more inviting to people. And so they open up a little bit more and they're more motivated to listen to what it is that you have to say. Not as a tactic to get what you want, but just as a mindset and a philosophy of detaching. You know, Jerry, Jerry Steinfeld had this bit that I share when I did these workshops. It's like a 45 second clip where he's in a diner with this girl and the girl, he, they've been dating for a while. And the girl says, Jerry, I've got something to discuss with you. It's probably going to hurt your feelings. And Seinfeld's like, okay, yeah, sure. What is it? Like nonchalantly shrunk in his coffee. He goes, this isn't going to work out with us. And he goes, oh, it's okay. Fine. No problem. Everything's going to be fine with me. I'll get, I'll be, I'll be okay. It's been nice knowing you. And then he goes, sing zippity doodah as he kind of walks out the door <laughs> and she's kind of shocked, like, of his reaction that he, she thought he was going to be distraught and all broken up about it, but he was like detached because in prospecting it's the same way. It's about conversations with an S not a conversation. And so when your intent and your mindset is every conversation is a meeting, that's when you set forth this behavior that is really off-putting to prospects. So it's not about what you getting people to stay on the phone. Prospects don't want you to get them to stay on the phone. They want you to help them avoid a future disaster. So it starts with that. It starts with you having a perspective and understanding the black and white version of the infomercial that your prospect is in. There that person is in the kitchen trying to make french fries with a knife. They make them three or four times a week and they're slicing the potatoes into half inch pieces. Some are big, some are small. They cut their fingers sometimes, but that's just how they know how to make the fries. They serve them half and end up in the garbage can because they're not like cooked that well. And then it's an hour and a half to clean up the kitchen. When I was telling that story, you probably visually saw that in your head. And I would ask people that are listening, can you see that black and white version in your head of your prospect? If not, you got to get to know your prospect's job better before you pick up the phone. Yeah, it's brilliant, brilliant, brilliant analogy there as well when it comes to like the chips. It's about getting that, getting that job done as well. So when it comes, obviously, you've got to change your whole psychology there, really, rather than just going for the meeting, you're just trying to seek and understand and sort of learn from your prospects. But what happens when you, you've been sort of getting to understand and trying to understand their pains and their problems, and you think, okay, actually, we can, we can help this person, this person, this is that mindset of I'd rather qualify someone out, get to get to know rather than yes, but you've got to yes, you think, okay, this person's, they're a good fit for us. But, and you go and pitch, and it, but it's at that point that your pitch seems to turn that person off. What do you think is going wrong there? Well, the problem happens when 
SDRs or AEs smell a little blood in the water. What I mean by that is the prospect maybe has disclosed a little information about, yeah, this has been a little bit of a struggle for us. We're not really doing that. And then all of a sudden in the salesperson's mind, they're like, oh my God, they just admitted something and now I got to go pitch. And oftentimes to your point, when you do that, it, that you get this kind of recoil effect because you haven't allowed them to talk a little bit before you actually transitioned into how you can help. If you do this right, your prospect will ask you, well, what do you guys do? Right? Because the way this works is after you, you open up the call, you do the problem statement and you poke the bear, you're going to stay in that part of the call a little bit without pitching. You're going to be a little curious. You might use a mirror. So that's repeating the last two or three words that the prospect said with a slight uptone as if to say, tell me more. You might say that, that's interesting. You might say, well, what do you mean? You might say, God, sounds like that's kind of, that's, that sounds like a little frustrating for you. And you're kind of just going to let them talk a little bit. And what you'll find as you let them talk and you stay in that moment is at some point they will say to you, what do you do? What do you do? Well, how, how do you help? And now they're asking you, which is a very different dynamic than you pushing your pitch on them. And then you can say, well, you know, this might make sense because you're not able to do X and you're potentially losing out on Y. Um, if, you, if you'd like, we can share with you a different perspective companies like A and Z are doing just so you can see what your options are for the future. Right. And so what I'm doing is I'm taking away this pressure of buy now by saying, review what your options are, you know, not for now, but just so you can see what your options are for the future. Should a need arise in the future, like these language, this, this phraseology is all about diffusing pressure. I mean, that's your primary job as a salesperson on a cold call is just to diffuse the pressure, the fear of you trying to get them to do something moving faster than they're ready to move. And so these words and this listening and waiting for them to lean forward, and then gingerly using words like for the future, should a need arise in the future, not for now, is going to take the pressure off and have a, the prospect be more likely to lean forward. Even if they don't want to book a meeting, um, you probably created a good impression. It was a positive conversation. You've created an opening. It's not about the closing. I mean, to a salesperson, it's a close. It's always a weird word to me because to a prospect, it's the beginning. The salespeople, it's like the closing. But anyway, that aside, you've created an opening and then you maybe you follow up with a video and maybe you go on a second, you have a second touch with them. Not everything has to book right on the call. It could book on a subsequent touch. And so not thinking also that everything has to be like, you know, you don't have to close on every call. You can create openings and plant seeds and leave yourself in a good position to be able to send some follow-up material or, or videos about some things that the prospect could get smarter about. Yeah, I completely get what you're saying as well at the start that I've always thought that the best conversations that I've ever had was when I'm having a good conversation with someone just understanding their business and then they ask me, oh, well, what do you do? It's the permission to pitch. They're bought in. You really need them to ask you the question before you can sort of really, you get that pitch in as well yeah it kind of flips it flips the call around a little bit well it gets them interested it gets their buy-in as well it gives you the real permission rather than just asking for it it gets them really engaged because right. if you ask someone for permission they're most likely just to say yes out of courtesy or politeness as well yeah the reason the salespeople want to pitch so quickly is because again the intent right i, I better pitch before they before i lose this 
Um, and that's what scares people off a lot of times. Yeah. What, what would you say? So you've, you've done that. You've then had your, you've had your permission to pitch. They've asked you, so what do you sell? How, what would you say are sort of the best, what are your tip, best tips for objection handling when, because obviously they're probably going to have some subsequent questions after this. They're probably going to sideline you this or sideline you that. How would you, what are your best tactics when it comes to objection handling? Which objection? Oh, good question. Um, yeah, we've already got a vendor for this right now. Okay, so let's talk through a couple of these. So the the first problem with objections is that people think they are things that actually are meant to overcome. When in fact, we have a vendor is not an objection. The prospect does in fact have a vendor. <laughs> it's, it's not an when they say I'm not interested, that's not an objection. They really aren't interested because of what you said is an interesting. Like these are not really objections. These are the prospects um, truth, right? So the first idea here that we have to talk about, again, getting back to intent, we always start with intent. Everything starts with the intent, right? We talk about detaching from the call call. The intent here is to shift away from thinking that objections are even objections. They're, they're more like statements um, and they're not things to overcome. There are things to understand. Um, and all objections, they carry one of two meanings. Either the prospect really does have a vendor that they just signed on with, and they're not gonna switch because they're on a two-year contract, or they're saying something just as a way to get you off the phone because it's uncomfortable to tell you the truth. And so they'll say things just to, to get you off the phone. So the idea with the approach that we could talk about is how do you create an environment where the prospect feels understood and comfortable telling you the truth so that you waste less time chasing? Not as a mechanism to get what you want or to overcome anything, um, but merely as a mechanism to get to the truth. So that's a, that's a kind of fundamental mindset shift. And then from there, um, something else that I realized several years ago when I was doing a workshop in front of 300 salespeople as a former elementary school teacher, what I did is I had these math multiplication flashcards. And I said, when I hold up these flashcards, you shout out the answer. So once five times five, everyone shouted out 25, six times five, 30. And then I held this one up. I'm not interested. And it was like deer in the headlights. I'm like, why is that? Um, it's because people haven't practiced what to say. So I created a series of flashcards that called Tongue Tied, series of 34 objection flashcards with the objection on the front and what to say on the back. And so you just practice these like you would your math multiplication tables. You're not practicing on your prospects. And an interesting thing happens. We did this with Joe at Cognizant a couple weeks ago. We drilled him on a couple of ones that come up on a call all the time. I'm not interested and not the right person. We got someone for that. And when these objections came up, um, he was calm and he was confident because he had practiced it on the flashcards. And for some reason, sales professionals, not all of them, but most of them don't practice. Like literally, it doesn't take but five minutes of practice a day to just drill these in with a buddy, an accountability partner, or even by yourself so that you don't get tongue tied. And so someone says, you know, I'm not interested. What I might say is, that's okay. Or I might say, that's not a problem. So that's just diffusing it, right? Because what the prospect is used to is, oh my God, you're about to like try to get me to say something and try to overcome it. So then 
After that, in a very calm voice, I might say, hey, you know, hey, look, before we get off the phone, so they know like, hey, we're about to hang up. Um, is it because your team isn't doing much prospecting? You really have people internally that are doing this or do you just hate getting cold calls? Not that I blame you. I, I sometimes hate getting them too, especially around dinner. <laughs> and that, that third one, it's called the rule of three in comedy. So Wendy Lieberman has a very famous joke. She goes, I just bought a three-piece bikini. It's a top for me, a bottom for me, and a blindfold for you. That's expected trait, expected trait, unexpected trait. I'm just applying that to this. That's all I'm doing here. And what you'll find when you do that is it just creates an opening. And they might say, like, I'm not responsible for sales training or marketing or any of that stuff. Just like, I'm not the, I'm not the person. So that's I'm not the right person. And then you might say, uh, that's okay. Hey, hey, John, I know it's not your job to help salespeople who haven't done their homework, but would you be against pointing me in the right direction? And sometimes they'll say, as in the case with the Cognizant call, you gotta speak to you know Bob Jones. And then you might say, thank you very much. Would he be bob.jones at act? Yeah, that's his email. Do you happen to have a number for him? I don't. Hey, I know I'm wearing out my welcome here. Would it be okay if I told him you pointed me in his direction? Sure. And now you can actually say, you know, Greg Jones suggested I give you a call, right? So again, the way you're smooth at this is just to practice on these, on these flashcards, whether they're my cards or some other person's, but I have these 34 objection cards um, and they're called tongue-tied and you can actually practice, get a little more confident. And again, just in a very smooth way. If you are hearing I'm not interested far too many times, what that means is, is your script isn't poking the bear the right way or it's a good script, but you're talking to the wrong person. Um, a lot of times people build lead lists up from Zoom info. They'll just export a bunch of stuff from Zoom info. That's the wrong way to do it because you're just gonna get a lot of people that no longer work there or they're not the right person because you're just going on title. The right way to do it is to actually go into Sales Navigator, select your people, do a little research to make sure they're in the right role, they're still there, and they are in fact overseeing the thing that you help with, and then pull the data from like a Zoom info, and then give it to this guy, Ryan Reisert. He has a service where he'll actually call down your list and determine the people that will actually pick up the phone. So instead of talking to one or two people an hour, you'll have like 15 conversations. Like again, like we did with Joe and with Cognizant on the Sales Hacker webinar a couple weeks ago. And that's an advantage because the more at-bats you get, the more confident you get. And you kind of get into this flow state. Yeah, exactly. I've still got all of my objections on cue cards from my first few months at Cognizant, many of which are from your objection handling guide. That is a Google Doc that I still share with new SDRs. Um, from when awesome. I joined as well. But yeah, I'd probably be on Sales Navigator building those lists with Cognizant, uh, <laughs> not Zoom Info here, uh, obviously, um, as well, of course. But I mean, and you're right around objections. It's not like trying to steamroll through someone. It's the seeking to understand here as well. Uh, I often find that sometimes you get people that are really on the fence though as well, um, or, or, they, or perhaps they say yes to the meeting. Um, and then unfortunately they don't turn up. What what would you say is, there's two ways of thinking about this is, are oh, they're too busy and they've lost their engagement or perhaps something wasn't as interesting on the call or it didn't go as well as you thought it is. What would you say the biggest reason for people not turning up to your meetings are and how to stop this? Yeah, so sometimes if you have a high pressure approach, you'll get a fake yes. This is a mechanism to get you off the phone, right? So 
they feel the pressure. They'll say, sure. They'll take out their calendar and then they'll have like buyer's remorse. Like, what the hell did I just do? I was just kind of coerced into <laughs> this meeting by this slick talking salesperson. And now it's too awkward and uncomfortable. I just not going to, not going to show up. Um, so it could be because you have a high pressure based approach. The other thing it could be is if your gut is telling you that the prospect is concerned or is unsure, don't hold that into yourself. Um, I learned this from Chris Voss when he was on my podcast. Um, he calls it labeling. And it's a really magical skill, not just in your business life, but also in your personal life. So if you're feeling that somebody is holding something in and it's in your gut, just say it. So like a few weeks ago, I was negotiating a deal with a VP of sales for a company. And I felt like some of the terms that I was asking for, I felt that he thought they were unfair. Like that's just so it was in my gut, like just based on his voice. So this is exactly what I said to him. I said, uh, it sounds like you think I'm being unreasonable and unfair with my business terms. And that just opened up the dialogue. You know, they were asking for 120 day net business terms, which is a killer for someone like me who has a small business. Um, and I was asking for all the money up front, like it was just like <laughs> diametrically opposed, you know? So we ended up, you know, I ended up actually I actually did end up getting paid up front um, a large percentage of the engagement. And then I settled for some uh, 30 days after the engagement, but it opened it up because I just labeled the, the problem rather than saying, you know what? I don't want to bring this up because I'm afraid. Um, Voss calls this, you know, just because you don't bring up the elephant in the room doesn't mean it's not there. Um, so to the extent that you could label the what, what prospects are thinking, um, you know, you bring it up. So some, someone asks you to send some information and you say, sure, happy to. Uh, what information would be most helpful? Just send me some stuff about your company. Happy to. Uh, you know, just so I don't do you a disservice by sending you irrelevant information, would it be okay if I asked you a couple questions? No, 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 dude, just send me like a brochure. John, I, I, I'm probably misreading here, but a lot of times when people ask me to send them a brochure, it's just a way of saying they're not interested, which is not a problem at all. I know you didn't ask me to call you. Am I off base here? And you again, it's just labeling the underlying feeling that you think the other person is thinking in an effort to just open up the dialogue and just get to more truth. Yeah, you've absolutely nailed that one there as well. Chris Voss, his, his techniques are pretty legendary. They really are. And not just, not just um, for sales, but you'll find that if you apply those techniques to your business relationships with your colleagues, I mean, I wish I would have had these techniques when I was your age. I would have uh, far less uh, strenuous relationships with my business colleagues that I had when I was a youngster. Um, and also in your personal life. I mean, it's really helped a lot, my, my marriage, to be honest with you. Um, it's made me a better listener. I mean, even though my wife knows what I'm doing, it still feels good that I'm, you know, that I'm, that I'm hearing her. Because the hunger to be heard is a desire everybody has. And in this age where everyone's distracted by cell phones and texting, when someone really listens to you and they're curious. I've watched some of Chris Voss's videos on the masterclass where he does those sort of one-to-ones with um, with the person that like is on it. And it's they're quite intense. He really does sort of think about those questions and really does hear someone. You mentioned earlier, like the mirroring and everything back and like changing your pitch just to get someone sort of engaged as well. It really nails it. Yeah, when I had him on my podcast, um, he did this exercise with me where he was asking me like something I was passionate about. I told him triathlons. He goes, what is it about triathlons you're passionate about? I said, my dad always wanted to do one. 
when he was turned 52, but he unfortunately got cancer and he died, never got a chance to. So I'm doing one like in his honor. And then Voss got real quiet. And this is exactly what he said, because it sounds like you were really close with your dad. Now, I didn't say that, but he read between the lines and he labeled the underlying emotion and you get like a rush of oxytocin. It's actually a biological reaction, the trust chemical, because you're like, wow, they, this person gets me. So it's not parroting back what someone said. It's really understanding the underlying emotion. Now, he's been doing this for God knows how long, 25 years. It's hard to do because you got to like think like, what is really the underlying emotion? I got to read between the lines. Not saying, you know, you want to do this in honor of your dad. That's parroting. It doesn't have the same punch. It's this little insight where you're like peering into someone's mind and you're actually articulating it, what they're thinking better than they could actually even say it. Very, very powerful technique. Mm, also, it's kind of just saying something that perhaps they, they wouldn't have said without that little that nudge in the right direction as well. Perhaps they didn't feel quite open enough to say it. So they said it in a different phrase. That's right. Cool. I've just got a couple of other questions as well. Um, and it kind of circles back to that poking on the bear um, analogy at the start, Josh. And it's what is the best way to capture your prospect's attention when it's over either over email or over the phone as well? How are you really going to sort of capture their attention and get them to engage with you? So I'll give you an example. Again, um, this gets back to understanding something about your prospect that you know that they know that they don't know that could help them avoid a future disaster. So it starts with the perspective. So let me give you an example of a cold call that I received from Kendra Warlaw over at Gravy Solutions. So just for some context, imagine that you are a course creator like I am. And I take people's credit card information and in exchange for that, they subscribe to my content they buy my stuff, badass B2B growth guide or tongue tied, et cetera. Um, what is it that she knows that I don't know? Or what she knows that I don't know is there's people that are trying to buy my stuff, but their credit card fails and they don't buy. And one of the ways I'm solving that problem is I'm maybe calling them up or I'm following up or I got some automated thing. The automated things suck because who's going to give money to an automated thing? And following up manually sucks because I'm a solopreneur and it's expensive for me to follow up and I'm not, I don't have I'm going to catch people on the phone or whatever. It's just weird, right? So she has a solution where they have an outsourced team that specializes in recovery and they typically are able to recover about 80% of the revenue that's lost due to failed credit card transactions. That's a perspective. So from there, we can actually make a cold call. Here's what it sounded like. I'm in the car, my phone rings. I say, hello. Kendra says, hi, Josh. My name is Kendra with Gravy. I'm calling you from the drive-thru at Starbucks. We've never met, but can I speak with you briefly? Now, she was calling from the Starbucks drive-thru, but the idea here is ask for someone's permission to talk first. Hey, Josh, we've never met, but I was on your website. I was hoping you could help me out for a moment. And I said to her, uh, sure, how can I help you? And she's going to go to part two of the framework, which is the problem. Josh, I speak to course creators all the time. And what we're seeing is that they're losing 18% of their revenue due to failed credit card transactions. And that happens about 50% of the time. Part three. And I was just curious, like, how are you dealing with that? Are you like following up manually? Is it automated? Or are you using an outsourced recovery team to recover 80% of those payments? Very difficult for me to say I'm not interested after something like that because she's not asking me, a, she's not value propping me, right? So now I think I said to her, um, 
I don't have that problem because I'm using Stripe. And she said, using Stripe? That's called a mirror, the slide up tone. I'm like, yeah, yeah, Stripe's processing all my payments. I don't really have, you know, uh, that issue. And she goes, well, um, I don't mean for this to come across as being too bold, but how do you know you don't have failed credit card payments in Stripe? And I said, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I've ever checked. She goes, well, if you'd like, I could send you instructions on how to check. And if you do have it, we can continue the conversations. That sounds okay. And I said, sure. And she sent me a doc, showed me exactly how to check for failed credit card transaction payments. And it turns out I didn't have any, um, but that's a good call call because she had a perspective focused on a problem that was making me bleed, um, hurting me bad, potentially, potentially. She didn't know until she made the call. Yeah, exactly. As well, I mean, how would you know? You probably wouldn't have known as well if those credit card transactions are failing either. I didn't know till I, I I wasn't even on my radar. I wasn't even thinking about it. So obviously, that's a that's a cool example. How, it's a bit harder to sometimes to get this across in an email and just to pique someone's interest. It's so much easier to ignore. How would you sort of format? I guess that into a, in into an email. Or do you have another example? Yeah, so I have a, a structure that I teach called 4T. So it stands for a truth statement, question that makes someone think, third-party validation, and a talk. So it sounds like this. Josh, saw that you sell a couple courses, The Badass Guide, Poke the Bear, Tongue Tied. How do you know that you're not losing 10 to 12% of your revenue month over month due to failed Stripe credit card payments. That's the sentence that's gonna make me think a little bit. Third sentence is the third party credibility. Um, Acme and Beta are using us to recover failed transactions 80% of the time. It involves an outsourced recovery team. That's third party credibility, the bandwagon effect. What are people like these people doing that I don't know that I want to be like? Like if I go to Boulder, Colorado, I go on Pearl Street and I see one restaurant with a line out the door and every other restaurant is empty. I want to go to that restaurant with a line out the door. So that's the purpose. That's, that's that bandwagon effect in sentence three. And then, and then a soft CTA um, worth exploring. That's it. I mean, that's a really, that's a three or four sentence email. That's it. Doesn't need that complicated. A truth statement. What is it that you noticed? about them that relates to what you do. Why, well, why are you reaching out to them rather than everybody else? What's a question you can ask to make someone think differently that's not a leading question? Third-party validation and then talk. Does it make sense to talk? Worth exploring. Matt, let's talk for 15 minutes. That's like saying, can I meet your parents on the first date? Just worth exploring, yes or no. And that's it, that's it. So it's the same, same exact thing, depending, it doesn't matter what the medium is, whether it's email or a cold call. On a cold call, obviously you can get a reaction of somebody. But it's the same. It's the same idea. Yeah, that four T's framework is actually something that I lived by as an SDR for quite a long time. It comes in your in your badass B two B guide, um, which I think is is a great way to sort of uh, sort of end this and segment into that resource. I mean, I use that religiously as an SDR. I still sort of use it now that I'm an AE as well. For anyone that hasn't got this and is interested in it, hasn't quite managed to pull the trigger on it, what sort of, what's included in the Badass B2B guide that they're going to be able to ha- get help with? Well, for clarity, it's not going to help you hang a TV. I mean, that is something <laughs> that we've established early on. But yeah, if you go to, to joshbron.com, 
and you click the badass guide, you'll see all of the people that bought it and how it's helped them be a little bit more awesome so that you can decide if you'd like to try it. Uh, so I'm not going to tell you how great it is. I'm biased. Of course, I'm going to tell you it's great. I want to sell, right? Invested interest. I got commission breath. So you go on joshbrown.com, click the badass guide, and you'll see a bunch of words from sales development reps and AEs about what the guide has helped them do better. And then you can decide for yourself if you want to take it, take it for a spin. Yeah, I think that's uh, excellent advice. And for someone who's got it as well, um, if you're in sales, I definitely recommend checking out those reviews and taking the plunge as well. Uh, and Will, if I want to be a better handyman, how, what do I do? What do I, what do I have? What, what can you teach me? Then do I have to like get an apprentice? Like what, at my age, is it too late for me? I'm 52. Is it, am I, am I, is it over for me? It's never too late. The best thing you can do is go down to your neighboring farm and ask for a summer internship, Josh. Uh, put in the long hours and you'll, you'll definitely be able to hang a TV at the end of it. You lost me at long hours. Uh, <laughs> but I'll think about it. Uh, I'll look into that, Will. Thank you. No worries. Well, Josh, thank you so much for joining um, today. Your, your insights have been excellent. And I think anyone listening to this is going to definitely agree. Um, and yeah, it's great to have you on and look forward to speaking with you again. Thanks for having me.